I think that sort of the beauty and occasionally slightly impenetrable nature of sacred architecture does, I think people do appreciate that mystery, even those outside the church, maybe sometimes even more. And the, the trick is finding that balance between intelligibility and mystery. Can sacred spaces and architecture in their elevated and dignified design both capture the transcendent reality of God and be accessible enough to invite people into relationship with Him? Does our popular culture view sacred art with suspicion? Is there a way to recapture the great cultural and design impetus of past ages? In this week's episode, architect, illustrator, and designer Matthew Alderman discusses the noble beauty of sacred art and architecture in the context of both church history and our current culture, and explores how these can aid us in the celebration of the Mass. I think that reverent architecture lifts the liturgy and encourages the mind towards a reverent and, I think, rubrical celebration of liturgy, whatever form it's in. We are integrated creatures with spiritual, intellectual, and physical dimensions, and we innately desire to experience God and the world around us in all their fullness. This is Living the Call. Matthew Alderman, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me here. You were one of the OG guests back when the show was actually something else. Remember that? <laughs> Yes, I certainly do. That was quite a fun afternoon. It was a tough thing to do with like, you know, when you have like co-hosts and mutual hosts. So that was one of the things that we found in the original version of this show is that a co-hosted show, you in a way kind of have to have the rules more clearly defined because I wanted to take the conversation one way and my host wanted to take it a different way. And it's like, you know, sometimes that's just the reality of what it is. Because when you talk to interesting people, there's a lot to cover. So you, you mentioned to me a moment ago that there was something in our last conversation that we never got to. What was that? Well, I remember when we first started out, you mentioned that I did a lot of work with heraldry. And the funny thing was, I think, I don't know, I think I somehow ended up recounting like the entire 800-year history of my grandmother's family and somehow never actually got to either her story or my grandfather's story or even my heraldic work. So, okay, well, you I know, that's a relatively minor part of my thing, but it is kind of fun. So. Well, I want, I want to be able to get to all of that good stuff, but I think first we have to define some terminology for those people who are not as yeah, well yeah. equipped in the area of heraldry to begin with or anything else that, that you do. So mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. are a really interesting person, my friend. So obviously graduate of a very distinguished classical design program at Notre Dame. You're a published illustrator. You're a designer. You're a speaker on liturgical planning. You've done things in sacred architecture. You've got an architectural background. You've worked on, you know, illustrations for Roman missiles. You've done a lot of things. But if you were trapped in an elevator with somebody and you had to tell somebody like in a nutshell what it is that really drives you and what your passions are, what would that be to start with? Well, I think... In terms of what drives me, I want to take advantage of every opportunity that God has given me. I'm terrified of missing something. You know, sometimes that causes me to maybe go down rabbit trails that turn out to not pay out. But, mm. you know, I hate, I hate to waste opportunities to make use of my talent. And in terms of just what do I do? Yeah. I like to joke that I wear many hats, some of which are literal hats. I should have put my Holy Sepulchre night hat on for this. I was going to say, they're, I'm sure they're, they're all very well designed, whatever hats they are. <laughs> but uh, Which, that reminds me of an architectural hat story I will tell you at some other point. But the one time I had the opportunity to do that, I didn't take advantage. But uh, mm. anyway, which goes back to my first point. But uh, in terms of what I do, you know, my day job, which is also, and I hate the, I, that sounds very dismissive, it's actually very important to me, is working as the project designer at the Cramon Ferguson, Cramon Ferguson Architecture Firm, Cramon Ferguson Architects. We're actually, I don't know about this for sure, but I think we're probably the oldest church architecture firm in the U.S. still practicing. Founded in 1889, and, you know, we've gone in, in and out of that profession a few times, but my boss, Ethan Anthony, brought the firm back to its roots about almost 30 years ago, and we've been hmm. going gangbusters since then. And, you know, I, I've been working there for about a decade, and it's been exciting to be part of a team, but also be able to, you know, I've been able to bring some of my contacts in, but I've also been able to, you know, be able to be part of a larger organization and learn from some really great people in terms of how to do great design, how to, how to make the stuff happen. And I'll talk about that later in a little more detail, but uh, there's that. 
I also have done, before I joined Crown Ferguson, I did a number of independent projects as a church designer, usually working with other architects. And like, I did a Catholic student center in the Midwest, which is, it's this, it's in Madison, Wisconsin, which is talk about, talk about a witness, very secular city. And they have this beautiful new sort of Italo-Byzantine Romanesque church sitting right there in the center of right there, State Street, right in the center of town, right at the entrance to UW-Madison with this three-story mosaic of Christ and majesty right in your face. It's, it's glorious. And also, I've done a lot of, as you've mentioned in your little interview, in, in my interview, your, your introduction, a lot of illustration, a lot of graphic design, a lot of, uh, I've done, I've illustrated a number of uh, publications of the Roman Missal when it was, when it was retranslated in, you know, 20, 2011. I've done, you know, people will come to me and say, hey, I need an image of this particular saint, you know, as Mm -hmm. a gift for confirmation or to give to my bishop or, you know, to mark this particular occasion or to have a devotional center for my my house. And I'll draw that or usually it'll end up being some saint that no one's ever heard of because they can't find a picture of him. Right. Which is kind of adds to the fun of it because I have to sort of do a little research there. And also besides that, as I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of heraldic design. That's, just, that's, heraldry is a study of logo, of not logos, but of symbols, of, of coats of arms. You know, people might call it a crest, but that's kind of Yeah, like really a family correct. crest or something like that. Right. I, right, I, I read right. one of the posts that you had on Facebook, and I confess, I, you know, I, I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person, but when I read the descriptions that you had <laughs> of this heraldry and the descriptions that you use, which a lot of them, I'm sure, are industry terminology or architectural terminology, I don't know, heraldic terminology— yeah, I confess yeah. I understood about 4% of what you were saying in that, in that description. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. English, you know, it, I'll, I'll t- actually, it's funny. I think uh, heraldic terminology actually varies from language to language, and it actually is a lot less weird in, so for example, Spanish or German. English, because, you know, I guess because the Norman French came in and, you know, took over England, a lot of it is essentially archaic French. And, you know, it's oh, kind, of interesting. All, kind of all mooshed together. And yeah. it is it is helpful, though, because it does, you know, the special terminology means you can describe something in a way which you don't necessarily need a visual image of. If you showed that description, you know, it would be like, you know, blue, a, a red castle or something. Actually, I don't know, blue, like a, a white castle on blue or something like that. You're not supposed to put a red castle on blue. But and the way it would be described in heraldry would be, I think, azure, which is Blue. Blue, I think sure. in French, like azul, mm-hmm. you know, a castle tower argent, which is, you know, white or silver, you know, like argent, like, you know, like silver. So it's, it ha- it's, it's extreme. It can, sometimes I think we find ways to make it unduly obscure, but ideally it's a way of communicating things like any sort but of But I love that. Book. I love the whole idea of sort of recapturing <laughs> some of this more, you know, arcane terminology. I, I recently, I was in Florida for the last couple of weeks. I've been traveling like a lunatic. So the last uh, couple uh, of months. My- uh, the motherland in my case. So. The motherland in your case. That's right. I, I was all over the state, Miami, Orlando, Tampa, Stewart, Jacksonville, you name it, and everywhere in between and drove the whole state. But outside of Tampa in St. John's County, and it was Sunday, so we obviously we got the whole family together, got to go to Mass. And one of my very favorite experiences is like opening up Google Maps and typing in Catholic mm-hmm. Church wherever I am so that I can discover a new parish and go to some new place. Now, I went to a parish, and I'm going to remember, see if I can remember the name of the parish. I believe it was St. James, outside of, you know, sort of about an hour away from Jacksonville, out in the in this really beautiful rural kind of neighborhood area. And is, I looked wait, at, wait, is that, is that pastoral provision, ordinary? Yes, that's exactly where I was going. My cousins used to go there. You're kidding. Now they've moved to North, yes, they've, I think they've, actually, no, 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 wait, no, 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 that wasn't them, that wasn't them, sorry, they went to a different parish. But I do have a friend, a family who went there who were dear friends of mine. Uh, I'm thinking of, I'm confusing two different things, but some friends of mine, I think, have since moved but used to go there. So my cousins were in a different parish. This is precisely where I was going. So I ended up Mm -hmm. looking up the mass times and I picked a convenient time for for what we were doing that particular day. So I didn't Mm -hmm. make any distinction beyond that. I thought it was like, okay, it's convenient. It's around the corner. Let's just go there. I went there and realized about 10 minutes in that I had actually walked in to an Anglican ordinariate church, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, a church that is part of the ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter, I believe is what it's called formally, so, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is mm-hmm. essentially, you know, a Catholic church, obviously, but one that retains some of the Anglican traditions and even in the language of the Mass, right? So this is a perfectly 
normal mass and fulfills all the obligations of that. But the language in it, Matthew, the language in it was this very kind of exalted English that frankly, like I hadn't heard in a long time, even in things that were, you know, common prayers, you know, the Our Father, the glory, all these different things, but done in a way that really kind of elevated the language of English. And we take that for granted because like we're American and we use this all the time. Mm -hmm. But so anyway, I had that experience where I got to, to really take in this really elevated English language and it was awesome. It, you know, I have a I have a great love of the ordinariate of the pastoral provision. Actually, the the firm I work for designed the cathedral for the ordinariate back before it was a cathedral. It was long before I joined uh, the firm. That was like it would have been like uh, I don't know. I would have probably been a good deal younger then. But I, I love there's I love their, their I love that community. I actually have been to many times to or several times anyway to the local ordinary community here in Boston. And I think, you know, obviously there are many different ways to worship, but I think the way that idea of elevated language is a very interesting and important idea and something we forget. And I think some of this we tried to get back when they retranslated the Missal in 2011 is that, you know, even if the earliest masses, well, the earliest masses were Greek, but I mean, when they switched to Latin, you know, it was the vernacular in quotes, but it was also written in a very hieratic form of like oratorical form of Latin. It yes. was something I think kind of like Cicero would have known or like even based somewhat on a language of the Roman, the, the public prayers of the, obviously of the, of the pagans at the time. But it was a, it was a language which to the Roman ear sounded hieratic and, and dignified. So, I mean, it wouldn't have been as completely foreign to say going to a Latin mass today, but it still mm. would have had some distance to it. I think yeah. that sort of Tudor English that you get, almost Shakespearean English, and there is, is a wonderful, I think, sort of it is way of approaching that in, in the English language. And I, I've had a, you know, a great deal of admiration for what they've done. It but, is. But yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of the same thing with, with, you know, with my, my work. And actually, they have, a, they have a lovely, the ordinary of St. Peter is a lovely coat of arms. I, I can't claim any credit for doing it. I, I'm proud, I probably know the person who did it, but I can't remember who it did. It's a very interesting and I think, very beautiful spirituality. And I think that does get down to the whole question of how do we find a language, visual language or musical language or language language to be able to communicate the sacred to people in a way that still, it's close enough to them that can understand far enough away that, you know, the, the imminence and the transcendence there, I think. I'm always on when people will give me a chance to opine. I'm always on about the great beauty and diversity of the liturgical tradition of the church and how you really would have to be looking for a reason, you know, not to want to practice if you truly are looking at things in a Catholic way, meaning that there's always some beautiful expression, some different modality, some different cultural lens that you can experience as a Catholic if you're just disposed to go look for it. So I, I love those aspects. And even though I was very well aware of the ordinariate, and, and I think it's a phenomenal thing, particularly because it welcomes, you know, former Ag Anglicans in full communion with the church. Nevertheless, I'd never actually been to an ordinariate parish. So it was a great experience for me. But here's a question that I have for you. So, and this is something I'm sure that you've contended with or contend with in, in the work that you do, or just, you know, from a philosophical perspective, what you think, because I think there's also a tension in this. So one side of the, the equation, which I can completely affirm, support, and admire, is this notion that the more elevated, the more eloquent, the more dignified, the more beautiful, the more reverent, the more whatever, you know, insert your adjective of choice, the better we are to really, as human beings and as people with intellects and reason and will— the better we can understand the mysteries that we're in front of, right? So it's a sign in a way of trying to capture in human terms and ways the transcendent reality that we're facing. I get that side of the equation. Now, the tension is there's another side of the equation that says, yeah, that's well and good. And I might even agree with that. But the reality is that the faith is also about, you know, looking, for, casting our net wide, going to all four corners of the world you know, meeting people where they are, being accessible, bringing the gospel to people in our time and place and in a particular way. So there's some natural tension in that where if you kind of put your flag too firmly on either side, there might be some tension between those, those two poles. But how do you reconcile this? Because again, like for me, I totally get it. I totally see that. I understand it and I feel it. 
when I'm in those settings, reading those things, experiencing those experiences, how the elevated and dignified draws us closer to the divine. Totally get that. And at the same time, you know, I also work with, you know, atheists and, you know, people who don't, who don't have any sort of faith walk to date. And I understand how that could also be a very foreign concept to them from the word go, right? So how do you think about that dynamic? That's a very good question. And I think it's something that it, it's, there's several pieces of this. And first, I would think, you know, it's interesting, you're talking about sort of, I guess, simplicity versus complexity in some ways. And in some ways, I'll take a page here from the, our, you know, different liturgical traditions here. And it's interesting to note that once I go, actually, you can go back to the language of the prayers I was talking about earlier. The, the Roman rite, whether in, in its traditional or its modern form, is characterized by a certain degree of certain spareness in its language. And that is that Roman oratorical language. The Romans were very businesslike people. Yeah. And you compare that with the Greek liturgy, which is very prolix. It's very elaborate. So, you know, it's the difference between, say, mm. you know, Agia Sophia or, and a Gothic cathedral. And oh, wow. in some ways, we're actually in the West here on the more simple side of the equation, funnily enough. But I, I think there has to be a certain degree of variety in these areas. And you also have to know your audience. I, I It's funny. My, my first love, you know, this is funny getting into the, the you know, Hispanidad, which is kind of at the back of some of this of our conversations, was, of course, Spanish Baroque architecture. But I know that trying to get Anglos to understand mm. that is they get scared off. There's too many cherubs or something. I don't know. So, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, mission style architecture is okay. I don't know why they seem to be okay with that. Maybe it's the Franciscans or something, but uh, it might you know, be. it's some communities and some people respond better to some styles of architecture or some styles of music than others. I think the other thing, and this is, I think less of an issue with part of it is I think we try to turn the mass or the church building itself into an entirely evangelical experience in the sense mm. of evangelism, the mass is about worship. And yeah. I think it's great if you can bring people there and they can see it. They, ah, I get it. God is here. I mean, that's actually how my, 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 my grandfather, not my, my Cuban grandfather, my American grandfather was, con was converted. He went to a, he was about to get married to a Irish girl, an Irish American girl. And he went to a solemn high mass in Corpus Christi at the Naval. He was at the Naval base there during World War II. And he was like, this is amazing. I, I want to be part of this. But, you know, not everyone's like that. But the mass is primarily for for the late, if not lady, for the for the Catholics. You know, catechumens are you know traditionally were dismissed from mass. Trying to get the mass in such a way that it'll make perfect sense to everyone who walks in the door, day one. I mean, for that matter, it doesn't even make perfect sense to me now. And I've been you sure. know I've been Catholic for thirty nine years. You, every mass you go to, you experience a little differently. You find different things. You know, you're not you're never going to be able to understand it completely. So I think there's a lot of pressure that's put on trying to sh shoehorn that into 45 minutes a week. And, you know, I feel bad for the priests who are trying to do that. They're trying to do a good homily. They're trying to get the parish announcements in. I think of like, you know, Philip Neri who would get together and he was, he was actually, you know, you know, he had a reverent mass, but he was also kind of a wild and crazy guy, you know, in, sure. in, in a good way. He was, he was, he was a whole sort of a, a holy fool. So the, 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 the patron saint of practical jokes. Exactly. Exactly. And he would have, you know, these sort of, you know, it were, of course, it was it was 16th century pop music, but I mean, they would have these sort of more loose spiritual concerts in the oratory, you know, next mm. to the church. So they could do, you know, their version of that and attract people. And then they would have the mass. And I think we just need to oh, think a little more yeah. broad in how we approach this, how we, you know, talk to people and how do we experience these things. And one thing I think is interesting I've seen in a lot of churches that I've been working on, it actually reminds me of our conversations with our mutual friend, Father Gerardo, you know, trying to have, you know, somewhere on the property, not necessarily, you know, part of the church, but like a bookstore or a cafe or some way to be able to outreach reach people where they are, you know. Right. You know, I think, I know there's a very traditional order in Chicago that has, I think, classical concerts in their churches sometimes. And, you know, I think there's, we have to think, you know, we have to try and not shoehorn everything into 45 minutes a week. And I think part of that's also the fact because, you know, everyone, everyone's in their little bubble. They get in their car, they drive sure. the mass, they have their experience. Maybe they go, they stay for coffee hour, 15 minutes, and then they go back. So, you know, maybe mm. the solution is, uh, you know, new urbanism or something, but that's, that's, that's a whole other question entirely. Yeah. It's really fascinating to me. And I like the way that you kind of started the framing and kind of comparing the Roman style of oratory and the Greek. And, and you know, there is the, 
You know, look, there, there's a lot of listeners to this podcast that aren't even Catholic, so some of this stuff may be going mm-hmm. over their head. But but one mm-hmm. kind of easy way to describe it is that, you know, the Greeks and the East in general, from a Christian perspective, are very oriented to the the notion of mystery. And by the way, the Latin translation of mystery is sacrament, right? So we hear that word sacramental all the time, and we that's where it comes from. But this sense, and, 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 and this is reflected in Greek kind of ways of thinking of the world and philosophy, theology, et cetera, is this sense that there are things that we don't understand, and it's okay that we don't understand them because that's part of the wonder is this mm-hmm. sort of sense of mystery. The Roman mind and kind of Latin, which led a lot to the Western kind of view of reality, is one that, you know, generally speaking, and this is not all obviously universal, but generally speaking, looks to try to understand, codify, explain, reduce, abstract, you know, kind of like wants to break it down more so that you can get into these, you know, modalities maybe that are a bit more, you know, you can explain it to somebody in a way that they can sort of understand it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that that expresses itself in a variety of different ways liturgically in the way that, you know, masses are celebrated. But I take your point that there's the mass and then there's the things that are around it, which can kind of be those those moments of maybe encounter with the person who may not be fully aware, but that it doesn't mean that you need to modify change or, 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 or begrudge in any way the liturgy itself or the, or the structure of the church, because it's okay for that to retain some element of, of mystery and kind of like, you know, being unreachable in, in, in some way, because you've got these other kind of things to you know, maybe draw people into this into this greater mystery. Like, I, I get that. I, I I understand that that kind of concept. And I think that the sort of the beauty and the occasionally slightly impenetrable nature of sacred architecture does. I think people do appreciate that mystery, mm. even those outside the church. Maybe sometimes even more. And the the trick is finding that balance between intelligibility and mystery. And mm. and also in my own work, trying to find a way, for example. How do I emphasize, say, the altar while making it still sufficiently visible for everyone and not so distant, you know, that people will not be able to see what's going on, for instance. It's a a certain balance, I think. And the other other thing I think is, I think we, you know, we often forget about this, but, you know, I think it would be very, it would behoove us greatly to look at the way that, you know, the missionaries, you know, whether in... In Ireland, you know, in the 500s or 600s, or, you know, for that matter, in Mexico in the 1600s, made these concepts intelligible to, you know, the people who became, you know, the faithful there. I think we have this kind of rationalist idea that, oh, you know, people, they just came in, the king converted, and they all just went in because it was you know, what they wanted. But I think there was a genuine real passion there. I mean, I, I, I'm going to get on a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. I actually brought the mug for it and everything. but. I'm involved right now through my through the through Crown Ferguson with a project that is very near and dear to me. It's in my hometown, and it is a shrine that will be dedicated to the martyrs of La Florida, the the mm. martyrs, the natives, and the Spanish missionaries who were either martyred by other natives or by the British and their Creek allies coming down you know on on sla- enslaving and raiding parties from Georgia. There was this whole period of maybe from about I don't know, maybe 15-something to about 1,700. And the team that's been in charge of this process, they're, they're getting them for beatification, have identified probably 50 out of probably hundreds of, and I think an equal balance of both, not only friars, but lay people, lay Spanish officials, children, you know, native caciques, the different leaders of the tribes, and just ordinary folks who lived in those communities. And actually, this was a mug from the, the local mission historic site that we have in my hometown in Tallahassee. And, you know, they're hoping eventually to build a church on the site, dedicated to Our Lady of the Martyrs. And maybe once they're beatified, they'll be able to um, get them in there. But the thing is that, you know, this was a Spanish territory. But sure. the tribes there were largely self-governing. There were there were different little villages there. And a lot of them voluntarily said to the friars, hey, come in here, teach us. We want to be Christians. And they were very passionate about that. And in fact, the lead martyr for the cause, Antonio Inija, or Inija, I guess I should say, who was like the second in command of one of the, the villages there, he went to rescue, I think, some of the, went from his village to rescue some of the folks who had been 
I think ca- ca- captured by the British, and of course he got killed. And one of the reasons that a lot of these people were martyred was they refused to leave. The British would say, hey, we're going to take you into slavery up in Georgia, up in North South Carolina, North Carolina. Said, no, you'll take us away from our priests. And rather than do that, some they of died. them were literally nailed to the life-size stations of the cross and set on fire. Wow. And I mean, like this was in the, Florida. Yeah, yeah, it was, and it's I've just, never it's heard just, of this. It's an incredible story, and I mean, like, and you go to Europe, every town has their local martyr, their local saint, their local, you know, bishop, you know, or there's there's legends of and stories of saints, you know, going, you know, a thousand years back, and of course we can't do that here in in the United States, but certainly in some parts of the country, parts colonized by Spain. There are stories that go back at least 400 or 500 years. And it's, it's, I think it was kind of forgotten because a lot of the, the Indian tribes, uh, when Spain lost Florida to the British in 1763, they thought, heck with this, we're going to go to Cuba and be with the Spanish people because we can be with our priests. And a lot of them kind of blended into the native population as, as is the case with uh, a lot of us Spanish. We, you know, wow. we'll, we'll marry, we'll marry anyone we want to. Yeah. And and some of them ended up in Louisiana, which was also Spanish at the time. And the story, I mean, it's been kind of, we've, we've kind of been aware of it. I think there's been people wanting to, to do something about this, to can't get them beatified for probably about 40 or 50 years now, but they're finally getting up enough steam. They've been able to go to Cuba and kind of go through a lot of the records. And I really hope that, first of all, the shrine gets built and that this story becomes well-known. Just look up, you know, La Florida Martyrs. They're amazing. That's a movie, Matthew, that you just described. I, I mean, it should be. You know what I mean? I think there's a documentary about them somewhere. But uh, but yeah, like an actual, like a proper Like a, a proper, proper Hollywood about, film. Oh. Yeah, for sure. That would be tremendous. Well, what, do you, what do you make? So uh, obviously I'm in California, you know that. And we've had over the last several years a tremendous amount of agita around the person of St. Junipero Serra. And, you know, certain camps view St. Junipero, who is the patron saint of California, among other things, Franciscan friar, who basically, I mean, the guy basically walked like the entire continent from like Mexico to California and established missions, et cetera, et cetera. But depending on where you view this personage, you have a view of him as this you know, patron saint of California and a great advancer of the Christian gospel, et cetera. But there are some not insignificant and certainly not quiet forces that view him very differently, right? View him as a, an extension of kind of colonization influences, as somebody who was detrimental, if not destructive, to indigenous populations, et cetera. And you know, I always kind of marvel at this sort of view of, of this person because it, it varies wildly depending on how you're actually approaching the view. In other words, are you coming from a Catholic perspective? Do you know what a Franciscan is? Do you understand what missionaries do? Do you know what the gospel, what the Great Commission is? Like, do you know any of these things? And then those who maybe don't know that and kind of view it maybe in starker, more political terms or some other terms. But what do you make of this? Because it ties into what happened in Florida, but like, yeah, you know, yeah. what do you, what do you make of some of these conversations? You know, I've not studied that particular, I've certainly been aware of all that going on. I've not studied the particular, so I would say charges brought against him, so to speak, to really comment in great depth. But what little I sort of psychologically, what I can think of is that I know that in most cases, when the church was there with the conquistadors, it was usually telling them to kind of back off and not to kill anyone. I mean, it's interesting right. that, right. you know, Mexico, which is, I think the church, the Franciscans were, were given a great deal of influence and power in there. They were trying to create almost like a new holy land there. There was this sort of, you know, this is great. You know, we, we have this this unspoiled land with these people who we can we can treat and protect. There are today, there's a lot of Mexicans and they're all very Catholic. And there's a lot of also very indigenous or mixed Hispanics. It's a very, you know, it's a very mixed population. And they're very proud of that, justly so. Cuba, where, you know, my people are from, the church, not as influential, not a lot of Tainos left. I mean, Mm. I think I've got like one way back in my ancestry who married or had, you know, had kids with a conquistador. And I think a lot of that was the church was there to say, you know, kind of cleaning up after their mess, apologizing for the, the, uh, the conquistadors and saying, hey, guys, sorry about, sorry about what these people have done. We're going to try to make your life better for you. We're going to give you the true faith and we're going to protect you from those bad guys with swords. Mm. And, you know, 
that's, I mean, that, that's, I think that's at least some of that was going on there. And the other problem is, you know, being a missionary, part of it is going to be, you know, in the language of life, imposing your, you know, giving a set of new beliefs onto people. And You're most of these people accept it, accept it, you know, willingly because it's something, you know, that is more hopeful and more beautiful, and more true than what they have. You know, obviously California wasn't like Mexico City, but, you know, they keep finding racks of skulls, you know, underground that, that indicates that I think there was a good reason that the Aztecs and the, the Puparechas and the, the Tarascans all wanted to become Catholic. In fact, I sometimes wonder, you know, if the reason that Columbus came in 1492 was to make sure that the Catholic Church was there in Mexico in time for Juan Diego to convert because he was a man of such natural virtue. Wow. That's so, an interesting thought. You know, so, you know, that was suggested by a friend of mine. But the, the thing is that, I mean, I don't know specifically every detail of the way the missions were run under, mm-hmm. under um, San Junipero. That being said, you don't go into being a Franciscan to get rich. <laughs> you know, so I think, you know, oh, yes, he is this terrible scam. He walks on foot, you know, through the desert up to this, right. you know, the back, the back of the spa, the beyond. This is like, you know, the remote, remotest part of the Spanish Empire, you know, right next door to where the Russians were in Alaska almost. And, you know, I don't think that's the man who is doing this just for his own uh, his own yayas. It reminds uh, you know, me so, in a way of like the, the what, what's the movie? Braveheart. Have you seen Braveheart, mm-hmm. the movie, the classic movie with Mel Gibson? And I'm aware of it. I haven't actually seen it. Well, so. there's this particular scene and it's based on a person of Scottish, you know, history. Is it, is mm-hmm. it, is it mm-hmm. William the Great or William the Conqueror? I forget, I forget exactly which William one William Wallace, I think. William Wallace. Thank you very much. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Braveheart That's was it. actually a name that I think another guy, but they stuck it onto him, but whatever. Okay. Well, there you go. So, but, but anyway, there's a scene in that particular movie where, you know, William Wallace comes into this town and the locals meet him. And upon seeing him, they're like, you can't be William Wallace. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's like, no, William Wallace is nine feet tall and has fire coming out of his, his mouth. And <laughs> like, you know, he's, he, he's got, you know, he's crushing the skulls of, you know, peasants and whatever. He's like, there's no way you can be you're just like a regular guy. Mm-hmm. There, there's some dynamic about that that I think about in these conversations about Junipero Serra, because the image, uh, you know, among his dissenters, the images of this, like, you know, kind of conquer, you know, kind of Machiavellian figure. And the reality of it is, is he was like a four foot two Franciscan walking barefoot in the desert and probably, <laughs> you know, no sword, no weapons, no anything. You know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I try to mm-hmm. imagine like ascribing some of the things that are contended against him to that view of him. It's like it's almost laughable on its face. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not to say that everyone there was an angel. I mean, there's, there were certainly plenty of, you know, every civilization has its villains, but of all the people to pick on, I mean, he's, he's the oddest one. And it's a real shame because he did such, such wonders for California and for the, you know, the missions talk about a selfless act no uh, question. in terms of sending people out to the middle of nowhere to teach the good word. I mean, it's, like I said, you don't you don't get rich off being a Franciscan. And it's just a real shame because, I mean, they kind of got caught up in the whole statues getting pulled down thing. And that's a whole other well, discussion for sure. because, for sure. you know, he's of all the people, the target. I mean, come on, he's he's, it, he's he's one of the good ones. And there definitely is that sense when I hear about these things. It's like, do we not have, you know, bigger fish to fry here than, oh, yeah. than this? And mm-hmm. thanks be to God that there are, at least within a church context, you know, bishops who have stood very boldly against that type of characterization of, of Junipero Serra. My own bishop, Archbishop Gomez, is mm, very mm, much on good record. Man. Good man. Very much on record, you know, specifically articulating exactly who Junipero Serra was. Of course, Archbishop Corleone of San Francisco mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has done the same and others, but um, I, I'm very grateful for that. Matthew, I guess in general, and this is something that I think you could have a really interesting point of view on, do you think that the popular culture views history and the kind of greatness of architecture and music and design and all these things with some amount of suspicion? And if so, why? That's a very good point. I think there's, of course, it depends on which cult, what part of popular culture you're talking about. I think there are several sort of kind of sort of bisecting this here especially when it comes to dealing with trying to express the transcendent. I think ever since we started getting the more modern or modernistic end of things for the last hundred or so years, I think we've had this agnosticism or skepticism that we can express any real meaning 
in architecture and art. And, you know, in some cases in secular art, well, you know, it, it reflects the secular values, which are kind of a dumpster fire, you know, no offense to mm-hmm. some of our listeners, but that bleeds into sacred architecture as well. And I'm going to use an odd example here, but though it does tie into your part of the world too, because, you know, the, the Crystal Cathedral sure. built by, I think, Philip Johnson, I can't remember, one of those famous, you know, modern architects, I could be wrong. This but is the Cathedral of Orange County, California. Right, right. It's now Christ, Christ Cathedral, which is an interesting choice. I thought they should have called the Cathedral the Transfiguration because, you know, it was being transfigured, but, you know, like, nice, no one listens to for me. for sure. But uh, I sent that in, that suggestion, but anyway. But when it was first built, obviously it's for a, lo- a sort of a low church cross domination. I'm not sure what they were, but it was designed specifically to be most, just almost entirely glass. And okay, Gothic cathedrals have lots of glass, but compare the type of glass we're dealing with here. Crystal Cathedral, it's all plain white glass. There's mm. all this light coming in. This sort of feeling like we can't do better than the nature outside. We, we are too, man is too small, too, too polluted to really be able to do anything that expresses the glory of God, save what's in nature. But you no, look at a, like- There's a lot a, of Protestant theology potentially at play there yeah. in that yeah, thought. Yeah, exactly. And then you get to, say, a Catholic church even the most the Catholic Church with say the biggest windows, like look at look at Saint Chapelle in France, Co- they're covered with they're covered with with colors. They're covered with figures of, of saints and biblical stories, and the, nat- the natural light is being passed through and you know yeah. transfigured yeah. by the nature. You know, pr- na- great grace perfects on nature. I think that's Correct. I think that's a phrase, isn't it? That is. Attributed to St. Augustine, I think. Uh, Thank yeah, you. I'm glad I got there. I'm always worried yeah. about accidentally perpetrating heresy because I forget some <laughs> of these things. Um, it's like, never do Trinitarian theology. You're likely to... <laughs> I'm not actually anyway, sure. So like I, so many of these attributions, I'm not sure if it was actually him who said it. There's a lot of Franciscan attributions that aren't actually accurate, but I think it is true, classically attributed true. to him. Good, good, good. Well, that's true. St. Francis, if he'd said half the things he said. But but yeah, the, the, I think I think we have this idea we can't express the divine in a, in a particularly concrete way. And I think you've found that in a lot of the more modern, even the more fairly traditional, quote unquote, buildings that have gone recently. Like, for example, and this is, I would not say it's a terribly traditional building, but they at least try to put the altar in the right place. Uh, Christ the Light Cathedral in, or is it Oakland? It's okay. got the same, yeah, you know, it's Bishop all Michael very, Barber. it's all very refined, but all the symbolism is very diagrammatic. A lot of, you know, circles in the floor and, you know, you've got the big Jesus on the jumbotron up there, up, you know, the sort of etched glass thing. It's very, I don't say anti-incarnational, but there's a certain distance. Like we don't want to get it too in your face. You know, Mm. giant Jesus is okay, but it has to be in like, he has to be like in two colors in etched glass or whatever it was. I think it was like, it wasn't glass. I think it was like some sort of light mosaic thing with holes and like aluminum or something. I can't remember. So I think there is a skepticism, even within the church, can we express the, the divine in a physical concrete way, which is embarrassing because we are the incarnational church. You know, Jesus came and of course. the reason we can depict God, you know, God the Father, you know, and God is because God the Son, his icon came down to us here on earth. Amen. So there's that. And in broader culture, you know, I think people at an instinctual level, find beautiful churches nice. They, they don't really understand them. Maybe they've, you know, maybe they've watched a lot of, uh, you know, scary movies or something where they've got these scary Gothic churches everywhere. I, I keep trying to get people who are, people are very into ghosts now. I've been trying to get them interested in purgatory, like, hey, you know, but I don't think that really, if I haven't you, able to get that to work. If yet, you so. like hey, ghosts, you might enjoy exactly, purgatory. Yeah, yeah. Do exactly. You th- <laughs> do you think that, just to kind of double click into this idea that you're highlighting here about, you know, maybe in a way the human contribution to the divine either being looked at as possible and accessible or as impossible and sort of not worth the trying. Do you think that some of that could be, I mean, I just made the comment, but I'm now I'm thinking about it. Do you think that some of it could be theological in Genesis, right? So as an example, you know, famously attributed to Martin Luther is the notion that, I think it was Martin Luther, if not, it was it was Calvin, but th- this notion of that humans are essentially these snow-covered dung heaps, right? That's, Where, that's Luther. He loves Luther. the poop jokes. Right, oh, the yeah, poop yeah. jokes. There you go. So Luther, <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a lot of deeper theological stuff. The whole principle of tulip, I believe it is, total depravity mm-hmm. is, is one of the steps in that. But this notion that there's, that we are so far gone, we are so 
unworthy, so degenerate relative to God that the only thing we can hope for is for God's grace and mercy to cover us in the same way that snow would cover a pile of crap, essentially. And so in that worldview, theologically speaking, it's not hard for me to imagine that you might think, well, what could I possibly do that could help amplify, express, distribute, you know, transmit this amazing snow through my, you know, dung filter, right? There's no way that I can do that. But if you view the human person in a different way, you know, made in the image of likeness of God, and that to be truly human is to actually approach being like Christ, then maybe you look at our potential contribution through art, architecture, et cetera, in a different way. Am I, am I, yeah. am I onto something there? I think, I think that's true. I think that's something, a good way of looking at it. I think, well, obviously we're never going to be able to, you know, to live up to that particular, you know, no, no painter can do, do true justice to that subject, but we can do an awful, we can do a very good job of trying. And I think that effort is the whole thing there. I mean, the other thing about faith and about our faith life is that a lot of it is, you know, we're not doing the heavy lifting, you know, God is giving us grace. So at the same time, I think if we're at least trying in our best way, I think that's a very sincere, mm. I think that's, that's the good thing here. And I think part of the problem is also, you see with, once again, within the church, there's a certain sort of faux humility that mm. tends to lead us to kind of, oh, we don't want this fancy church that distracts. And the funny thing is, first of all, it's not about us. It's about God. And, you know, obviously we don't want something that's just glitzy, but we want something that is the best and most beautiful and most moving. The other thing is that there's this notion, which I think arose out of, I think it's a certain rationalist tendency. And I think it comes out of, I think it was put, I think it kind of came one of the, one of the weirder side effects of the liturgical movement in the mm. 1920s and 30s, which I actually, actually did some good things. But they were very much, I think they were reacting against the somewhat overstuffed churches of the 19th century, which did have a lot of gigas and doodads and stuff all over the place, random putti everywhere. But they were worried that anything in the church would distract from the action of the mass, as mm. opposed to thinking, this is, like, this is a concert, this is something working in harmony with the liturgy. And the other thing is, to be honest, what's wrong with a little holy distraction? I mean, sure. I think ha as long as you're, if your mind is wandering during Mass, at least you're looking at something which can inspire you to beauty and to prayer. Well, there's, there's plenty of stories of that actually being the case. I mean, you mentioned your grandfather, I think, earlier, but there, there's mm -hmm. well-documented cases of people even walking into sacred spaces who, ha who were atheists, who were in part or entirely converted just simply by being in the presence of an extraordinarily sacred space, right? Because it yeah, kind of exactly. resonated this sort of this divine to them in a way that they could understand. I mean, so that that's it, not an uncommon thing. It's funny, in the, it's tie, tie into something in the news. The reason that Ukraine is Christian and you know, Orthodox Christian today is because of St. Vladimir's emissaries were kind of shopping around, religion, church shopping, shall we say, back then. And I think they only went, you know, the, the church was still united back then. So they, the fact they opted for the East rather than the West is somewhat immaterial. But I think they ended up going to Agio Sophia in Constantinople. And they're sure. like, wow, this is incredible. We didn't know whether we were in heaven or on earth. Wow. Um, they also checked out, they also checked out the Germans. And of course, they probably just found some barbarians worshiping the little church. They weren't that impressed. But, you know, we can only do so much on the frontier. And they ruled out Islam because they liked, you know, pork and, and booze. I mean, it is, right. it is you know, Eastern Europe. But yeah, I think that's certainly, you know, there's nothing wrong with wowing people in a good cause. And looking at a building as something that you're going to read over many, many years or many, many days, something that's not immediately perceivable at all at one glance. Like you're not getting, I think people feel when they go into older churches and this particularly within churches within, shall we say, the Latin cultural sphere, whether it's Italy, whether it's Spain, whether it's Latin America, they are kind of, they go in They're you know, if they, if it's a, of a particular era, they often are kind of like, you know, their mind is blown and they can't really focus on it. And I think, because the world is so busy, a lot of these people, what they're looking for is something that's a little more, shall we say, low key and maybe Benedictine or Cistercian, which is great. But mm. if you're in a church or a parish church, you're in there every, every Sunday or you're going to daily mass, you know, you're going to have the rest of your life to be able to experience that. So you don't have to take it all in at once.
As you look to the future, Matthew, do you think that there is a moment where we as a culture, and I guess I mean that more than just American, maybe more broadly, a global kind of culture, can in some place, in some ways recapture the great kind of architectural and design impetus of past ages? And what I mean by that is that you know, when I, and, and this goes beyond architecture, you can think about it in maybe a musical terminology and music is very much interwoven in the concept of sacred spaces mm-hmm. and architecture. I'm mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. you could speak a lot about that as well. But I think of like, you know, a composer like Bach, right? Mm-hmm. That if you're going to trust the history on Bach, you would, he, you would know that everything that he composed, he composed with God as his sort of, you know, principal motivation. And in, in that context, when I'm an architect and I'm building something for God, and I don't have the distractions of like, you know, Instagram or Netflix. Oh, gosh. I can point all of my creative energy and all of my my influence into the design and the creation and the building up of this extraordinary work, whatever it is, whether it's a church, whether it's a musical piece, whatever it is. Do you think that we as humanity can ever recapture that level of kind of focus or I guess another way is like, how do you view the future of architecture specifically in a kind of a sacred context? Well, I have to say, if you'd asked me this question right fresh out of college, I would have been starry-eyed and very optimistic. That being said, I think we've come a long way in the last 20 or so years in terms of sacred architecture and just our, the opportunities to make culture, traditional culture, beautiful culture. I think in some ways... There are maybe greater obstacles than I would have expected initially, especially now with with the economy being the way it is. But I think I'm seeing more people who come to appreciate that. I think every you know I, I think every church project I've seen there is at the very least some interest in doing something that is identifiably Catholic and beautiful, mm. even if maybe some of the details are a little off. I think what is needed is more education, more. In terms of architects, in terms of also shaping the taste and the understanding of a lot of the people who are commissioning these things. So we're getting more of that. I've been lucky to have worked with some very, both enthusiastic, but also very intelligent clients who are, you know, willing, obviously, Mm. you know, we're not going to be able to do, you know, there's no, there's no gold plated toilet seats here. It's not the U.S. Army, but, you know, you can, you can at least put a decent amount of money in to do something that's beautiful. And also to to prioritize the most important areas of the church, the the altar, the the sanctuary, or phase it in such a way that you can add stuff over over the years. Mm. The other thing is that there needs to be more people who can the crafts who can do these things. I, I've I've been blessed as part of the work you know that I've been that I've been doing at Crown Ferguson. We have a lovely, a wonderful, and lovely team of Colombian woodworkers that have been doing a lot of our high end wood carving by hand. Then they, frankly, it's it costs just about the same, and frankly, it's a lot better quality than anything happening here in the U.S. Italian stonemasons. I've I've worked with a painter in Bulgaria. I found I've worked with American painters who have put a lot of work in these things. And I think maybe maybe it's kind of the same instinct that drives people to, you know, there's been a lot of reassessment about how how we're going to educate our children in the future. You know, some people should go to college, but some people shouldn't go just to go to college. And a lot of people are are rediscovering the skilled trades. And, you know, I think stone carvers, painters, people who are, I think we have this image of the artist as someone who goes into a room and paints his feelings. And I mean, that's, that's fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I think, you know, the way, if we're going to get a, a renaissance out of this, we need people who are willing to work within the tradition and bring, of course, their own feelings to it, but work with, mm. you know, to the greater glory of God and, to for specific commissions and having people who can do that and they're getting more and more, it's going to make things a lot easier. The other thing is, you know, I think there is a certain degree of, of finance involved here. And I think we are getting people who are more willing and more generous, which is really wonderful. Sure. And the other thing though, I think that one needs to look at all besides just the theological arguments is someone balks at, let's say, you know, oh, this, this church cost 15 million to build or something like that, or 20 million. And then, but they think, oh, that's a lot of money. And it is, but think of how much money Hollywood blows on, you know, some blockbuster, which, you know, is mostly CGI and, you know, no one's going to remember it five years from now, much less five minutes from now. Or how much they blow, not even in the making of it, but in the marketing of it. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe that, that I'm hoping people maybe will kind of appreciate that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I, I, think, I think we're going to get through this. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. At the same time, it doesn't mean we don't, we can't just, we can't sit back. And I think, I think the difference from how I feel about this now as I did when I started out 15 years ago is that I know, I realize now it's not going to fall into our laps, mm. but fortunately I'm out there, you know, we're out there, all of us sure. who are working on this stuff. It's not just, fortunately, it's not just me against the world. I, I'm working under and in a, a great firm and working with a lot of skilled craftsmen and a lot of very talented people who also can put the word out and explain, you know, theologically why we're doing these things. And, you know, we're, we're, we're Catholics. We're never alone. So. Absolutely. So ju- just this week, Matthew, one of the newly appointed cardinals by Pope Francis, Cardinal-designate Arthur Roach, who is the, the prefect of the Dicastery for Divine Worship and the Sacraments, came out in an article and called, said that it was a tragedy that there existed tensions within the Latin Rite of the Church over the way that Mass is celebrated. And, he, and his argument is one that kind of hinges on the different versions of the Roman, Roman Missal and people who subscribe or prefer the one before the Second Vatican Council and those who prefer the one that came after the Second Vatican Council, the, the sort of ordinary form of the Missal. And, you know, this is, it's an interesting thought or point as it relates to some of the tension that exists liturgically among different camps in the church. Some people like, you know, masses this way and other people like it this way, whatever. Is there something similar among architects? Well, it's interesting because I don't think the lines are quite as sharply drawn because, you know, first, you know, I'm someone who wobbles back and forth between multiple rites of the church. So I'm, I'm somewhat omnivorous regarding these things. But I think that, uh, you know, if you ask, you know, any young priest, whether he is, you know, Tridentine Mass only or is just your average Novus Ordo guy doing a dignified, reverent, but, you know, all English Mass, I think they're going to want a beautiful church. And mm. maybe they might, dis- they might have some distinctions about, you know, how, how much detail there's in, maybe how, you know, the specifics of where the altar is set up. But I think you're, at least among younger clergy, you're going to find, I'm going to, I think you're going to find very few people who want to build a ski, a ski lodge type church at the time that were being built about <laughs> 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, With lots you of see green it foam. in Europe sometimes, but frankly, it's like the dog walking on its hind legs. It's, it's amazing. Anyone's building a church in Europe now, much less exactly. a beautiful one. But it is interesting how some, you do get some of those very large, very sort of modern projects coming out of nowhere that I don't think have as much of a popular enthusiasm, like the new Padre Pio shrine, which Padre Pio would have been horrified by. It looks like a squash turtle, which mm. was actually one of the ways it was described in an article that was meant to be laudatory about it. And wow. I think this issue transcends liturgical politics. Uh, I think you can do a beautiful Novus Ordo in a, in a, in a beautiful church. You can do Solemn High Latin Mass in a beautiful church. The altars I design can be used to me the direction in a lot of cases, which is the way it's required in, in the rubrics. I don't think there's, you know, anything that's contrary to Vatican II and, and what we're doing, or for that matter, is a, offensive against the older rite either. You know, if you look at the Sacrosanto Concilium, the document on the liturgy of Vatican II, it says, I think that churches should have noble beauty. The word noble mm-hmm. simplicity that everyone talks about is not actually in that text. So, you know, I think there is a little bit of generational conflict there, but I don't think it's quite as tied in the specifics of the liturgy. And I would not want to say, you know, I would not pin down the solution to this problem being any one form of the mass. I think, I think that reverent architecture lifts the liturgy and encourages the mind towards a reverent and, I think, rubrical celebration of liturgy whatever form it's in. I think that document, Sacrocentum uh, Concilium, also talks about Gregorian chant having a oh, pride, yeah. of, pride yeah. of place, right? Like having a, a, a kind of yep. preeminence among the different mm-hmm. musical forms. Not to say that that's actually been executed very well. But you, but you would say from an architectural standpoint, like among architects, among people who build design sacred spaces, that there isn't the same type of entrenchment that might exist liturgically? Well, here's the other thing. We're talking about architects. That's a separate from clergy and clients. Yes, separate. 
that's a whole other kettle of fish because I am in a tiny niche of a tiny niche as a traditional church designer. I don't pay attention to what's going on in a lot of the rest of the. You don't zoom the out rest that much. Of the, yeah. You know, just because frankly, it's just so foreign to me in some ways. And I think you'll get the ideologues who are very much, I would not, you know, I, I once, when we went to, when I went to school at Notre Dame, it had Peter Eisenman, who was this famous deconstructivist architect come in and speak to us. I don't know why he hated us. He called us all terrorists, which was a bit, which frankly was particularly tasteless because he was lecturing about his design for the World Trade Center, which he didn't actually get. You know, the people like that, wow. we're incomprehensible to them. Though I, I find modern architecture perfectly palatable if we think of it as just another historical style, which I find mm. is also really annoys them, which I find kind of hilarious. Right. Because they think that is the style potentially. That, exactly. That is, yeah. Exactly. Mm. And the funny thing is a lot of that, it is becoming kind of a thing of the past. You know, like we have, we have postmodernism now, which who knows what that sure. is. <laughs> but I think there are probably some big, you know, I think the, the people who are doing the quote unquote modern churches nowadays, mm-hmm. a lot of them are people who specialize in, don't really specialize in church building to my knowledge. I think it's more just like building a school or building this or building that. And a lot of them, you know, people will say, I'd like this to be a traditional design. And problem is because they haven't been trained and you don't have to go to Notre Dame to get that. There's a lot, I mean, the people who taught at Notre Dame, they didn't go to Notre Dame. They, they learned it somewhere else. And a lot of classical architects and traditional architects now were self-taught after going to architecture school, obviously, having to learn a lot. But a lot of these other guys, you know, because they haven't even, they haven't had this familiarity or they haven't taught themselves, they'll say, okay, we'll stick some pointed arches here or some, some little finials or, you know, a, a, a steeple on top and call it a day. And I think that's becoming more and more mainstream now. And I frankly am a little more troubled by that than by, you know, a church ship like a washing machine. I mean, those are still being built, but they're frankly sure. kind of like bell bottoms. I mean, they're sort of, they're, they're <laughs> they stand out now. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Instead, what you're going to get is something that was kind of okay, but they didn't quite do their homework. Yeah. They mean well. They certainly do. As we, as they say, in, as we say in the South, I am from Florida originally, uh, bless their hearts. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. If, if you were going to, just to kind of wrap us up here, because we've got to get on our way, but if you were mm-hmm. to say to somebody in, in kind of a succinct way, what architecture, design, heraldry, et cetera, its utility in a person's spiritual journey in 2022, what would that be? I think it's another way of knowing and experiencing. We're coming from, and once again, I think this actually ties into the liturgy as well, from a very listening, reading sort of culture, which, you know, the emphasis is, we you know, we sit with our, with our, our noses in the book, you know, we read the, the readings as the reader is reading, which is fine, to, you know, a literally multimedia culture. We are, we're becoming much more visual culture now. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. But, you know, I think of, the greatest architectural and liturgical experiences of the past, whether you're talking about Baroque Rome or 13th century France, had painting, had sculpture, had music, had, had text, had incense. You know, it, you know the, the, the ability to think symbolically and mm. visually at multiple levels, I think, really broadens the mind. And it, it, doesn't ha- it doesn't require a certain – it allows us to think both figuratively and literally at different levels. And I think that's yeah. – I would say that's what would the utility is there. It really is – it allows you to experience the truth of the faith in a way that's a little more than just intellectual. Mm. And, that, of course, that's critically important because we are creatures that are, you know, integrated with not just a kind of a spiritual dimension, but a physical one. And we have all the senses and we want to, you know, experience things in the fullness. That's awesome. Matthew, before we, we kind of sign off, how can people keep up with you, find out what you're up to, know what you've done, know what you're going to be planning to do? Like how can folks keep tabs on you? Well, a couple of places you can find me. My website is MatthewAlderman.com, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-A-L-D-E-R-M-A-N. Dot com like like the civic official alderman one alderman. end mm-hmm. I've also got a, a little page for my my art studio Matthew Alderman Studios on Facebook just type that in Cram and Ferguson our, our web page uh, I think we're also on Instagram as well is Cram and Ferguson all one word C R A M A N D F E R G U S O N dot com and we've got all sorts of stuff we're, we're, our new works going up there 
I, you know, we've been updating the Facebook and Instagram pages regularly. So I think those are probably the best ways to reach me, I think. And, you know, there's, there's, there's contact buttons on both of them. So. Well, we'll include all that information in the show notes and I encourage people to check it out. And may God continue to prosper all of your great work, my friend, because I do think that, you know, we are creatures of body and spirit and intellect and all of those things in the most fullest sense can have an encounter with the divine. And I think that architecture and design and the way that things look and the experiences that we have uh, can be fundamental to kind of helping us on our spiritual journey. And so for one, I'm happy that you're out there doing what you're doing. And I encourage people to to follow you. And uh, what a great privilege to have you on the show. Thank you for stopping by. It's been an honor, Deacon. Thank you for having me. This has been delightful. It's a, it's a privilege to, to do it. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to subscribe. You should share this show. You should share this episode with somebody, particularly somebody who might be interested in the arts or the contribution that the church has made to the arts so that they can hear Matthew's voice find out about what he's up to and many others like him. So please do that. And we'll see you all again next time on Living in the Call.